Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And if I had the time and energy right now, I would play one of those old-time radio clips that goes uh, something like, We interrupt this program to bring you an urgent message. (laughs) But if I did, you would probably get the wrong impression. Uh, In truth, that scene only works in my mind. But if you've been with us these past few weeks, then you know that uh, this month we've been running a pledge drive. And I'm happy to report that we are almost funded through the end of this calendar year. So a big thank you to all of our donors who hopefully have already received a personal email from me along with a PDF copy of my novel, The Genesis Generation. As you know, uh, for this month-long fun drive, I've been playing a seldom-heard Terrence McKenna workshop from June of 1994. And, by the way, I am aware that the static in that conversation is a bother, but I wasn't able to remove it with the tools that I have available. Apparently, uh, his microphone had a short in it, so I'm sorry for the distraction, but since I hadn't been able to find this particular series on the net anywhere else, I thought that, uh, well, we could put up with a bit of static and not lose whatever newly shaped ideas the Bard McKenna came up with. Anyway, that is the program that I'm going to interrupt right now. Uh, There's still at least one more, and maybe two more, McKenna Talks in that series uh, that I have left to play for you. But today there's something that I find more pressing, and at least for me, it's uh, just as interesting as Terrence can be. Now I can hear you saying, uh, as interesting as Terrence? Uh, You've got to be kidding. Well, just stick with me here for a minute. One of the uh, things that's easy to do is to mainly focus on the best-known historical figures in any era and overlook the behind-the-scenes people who actually did as much and sometimes more than these celebrities did to foster the growth of psychedelic ideas. While most of us know the names of uh, Leary and McKenna, and uh, a lot of us also know about Al Hubbard, Myron Stoloroff, Gary Fisher, and uh, the other lesser-known movers and shakers of the recent past, there's one person that I've mentioned here in the salon before who is every bit as important as any celebrity has been in uh, opening up the public discussion about psychedelics. And to my great pleasure, we are going to hear from her in just a few moments. Now, if you've listened to or read The Genesis Generation, you'll remember a chapter that is titled Caitlin's Salon. Caitlin, of course, is an Irish pronunciation of Kathleen, so I'm told. And the model that I use for Caitlin is my dear friend, Kathleen Wirt. And after we listen to Kathleen's talk, I'll return to my telling of her salon story in my novel. But first, let me set the scene for the talk that I'm about to play for you. This talk was actually given in January of this year, 2015, for any time travelers who may be with us now, and it was the first talk given at the Aware Project Salon in Los Angeles. I find this talk to be significant from two perspectives at least. First of all, Kathleen, in telling the story of the legendary Venice Salon that she hosted for eight years, gives us a look back into some important history of the then newly energized psychedelic movement. You see, it wasn't all that long ago that it was actually dangerous to admit that you had an interest in psychedelics. For example, uh, those of us who attended her salons were aware that our license plates were probably being recorded while we were attending her salon, and that we had thus placed ourselves in a more public position concerning these substances. 
Looking back on it now, I realize that it actually wasn't much of a risk for those of us who attended these salons. The risk was primarily all Kathleen's. But we were all on edge a little bit, at least, uh, most of the time. However, getting back to my point about our unsung heroes, I simply can't find the words to explain the importance of Kathleen's salon. Up in Northern California, there was Esalen, Terrence McKenna, and the Shulgans as focal points. But in Southern California, we had Kathleen's Salon. Now, many of the people who spoke at Kathleen's also were featured at Esalen from time to time. But Esalen's expensive, and Kathleen's was, well, it was a free potluck event. And it was within driving distance to over 15 million people. And here's the thing. Kathleen hosted this event every third Friday of the month for eight years. And if my memory is correct, during that time she only missed one or maybe two nights. But even then she still opened up her home on those occasions, uh, even though she wasn't there herself. Now this was no small matter because the house wasn't all that huge and yet I can't remember there being less than 40 or 50 people there at any time. It was always an amazing evening. And since street parking on Penmar was tight, many of us would get there several hours early, uh, particularly those of us who had to drive a bit to get there. And it wasn't unusual to walk in early and find Myron Stolaroff already in the kitchen warming up the lasagna that he usually brought to share. And sometimes Rick, the sitar player, would be there melting chocolate for his candy treats. But by the time the evening speaker was about to begin, the conversation from the kitchen, dining, and living rooms was so intense that we were almost shouting at one another to be heard. And then Kathleen would take charge. <laughs> She'd get us all quiet and introduce the speaker. So, why am I spending so much time on this, you ask? Well, Kathleen's Salon has now been the inspiration for the Aware Project Salon, which is at least the second salon she's inspired. And I say second because Kathleen's Salon was also the inspiration for this, the Psychedelic Salon. Unlike Kathleen, I don't have what it takes to open up my house to a raft of strangers, many of whom stayed around until well into the morning after one of these sessions. I know that uh, my wife and I would say goodnight to Myron and Jean Stoleroff as we headed in separate directions for our hour-and-a-half drives home. And as we'd be parting, we'd still be amazed at the fact that even though it was now after midnight, we seemed to be the first ones to leave. And so now Kathleen continues her work by sharing her experiences with the Aware Project Salon with the expectation that the lessons won't have to be relearned by the organizers and members of this newly formed salon which is hopefully only one of many that are now taking place around the world. So this is more than a talk simply about the history of one of the most important gatherings of working-class intellectuals to take place recently. It is also about keeping the flame alive and moving forward. And there's one final thing that I'd like to mention before we join Ashley Booth as she introduces Kathleen. Even if you are relatively new to the Psychedelic Salon, by now you know about Terrence McKenna, who played a significant role in helping us all find others with whom we can share our ideas about psychedelics. In my opinion, Kathleen Wirt, who kept herself behind the scenes as our community grew, has contributed every bit as much to our culture as has Terrence or Timothy or any of the other elders. She is truly one of a kind. The AWARE Project's aim is to balance the public conversation about psychedelics, spread accurate information, and give a new face to psychedelia. We feel that this change will occur through connection and a relationship, one individual at a time. We are calling on everyone whose lives have been improved through the mindful use of psychedelics to educate themselves, become ambassadors, and become ambassadors for the psychedelic experience. 
Show those around you that people who use psychedelics mindfully cross all social, racial, economic, and political boundaries. Um, all right, so I lo- I'm really excited to introduce Kathleen Wirt. Um, I'm going to read your little bio. Don't, because it's part of my talk. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just thrilled to have you, I'm so, and um, you're a, a perfect, perfect first speaker for our uh, for our series. So, um, with that, right now, I swear, I, I see at least half a dozen people here who used to come to my house, and it, it makes me like feel I feel like I want to cry. I, I miss it so much. Um, I'm gonna sit down so they don't stop moving around. <laughs> We, and, and everything that Ash is saying about what she's hoping to achieve with this meeting, um, I'm just sitting here thinking we said exactly the same thing 17 years ago, um, except it was very scary and very illegal, and um, we didn't have any lists. The way the whole thing began, um, I had a, I was looking for a place to live. I just left my husband, and I found a house in Venice with a friend of mine who was the secretary for Dr. Oscar Janiger, and the People in the Albert Hoffman Foundation were concerned. They were all pretty much in their 80s. And they were very concerned that their research would be marginalized and that their lives would be not understood. And, and that they had just suffered like enormous beatdowns through the war against drugs and zero tolerance. And, um, you know, really people had ripped them off. They trusted people who stole things from them. And they were just pretty much at a low point and um, looking for somewhere to put their archive of study together, um, to, to put it all together somewhere safe where we could start to digitize it and archive it. And um, we moved in, Lisa and I moved into this house at 2463 Pinmar, and the Albert Hoffman Foundation paid a third of our rent and pretty much had the dining room, which was a library. And what really kicked this off, we had... Um, Finally, everyone was so excited, the Sandoz Corporation had agreed to let go of their documents about the research with LSD. And, and this was something that, at the time, we had like a list of the board of directors, and nobody really wanted to be associated with it. People were very much on the down low. It, it, people's um, research had been discredited. Their lives had been, um, like I said, discredited. Um, people had their... their practices taken away from them, they were on FBI watch lists, um, and so this was very, very, very underground in, in the beginning. And they started having the board meetings at the house, so we had, they brought in all these books, all these volumes, and um, and some paintings, which I will tell you about in a minute. Um, but the uh, these gentlemen sat around, and I remember the first board of directors meeting they had at the house, I, I listened in for a little bit, and, and the thing went on for maybe seven hours. And I'm thinking, well, they're all retired and they don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> and they were discussing whether they, they needed to get some funds happening. And they were discussing, would we, if we had people contribute, say, $20 a month or $25 a year for a membership, would it be a membership? Would they be a member of the foundation or a friend of the foundation? And this created a three-hour discussion <laughs> using which word. And I just remember sitting there thinking, Oh my God! These guys have done so much essay. <laughs> I was thinking we need to get some new people on board here. Um, you know, because this is just—I don't have time for this. Um, because the, the, the discussion was that if we called the members of the foundation, then somehow there was an expectation that they would get something back. Anyway, 
Is that the door open? No, it's a motorcycle outside. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, we... Um, I started out going to raves with Doc, uh, John Beresford, who was a 75-year-old um, psychiatrist from Canada who headed up the, um, the Committee Against Unjust Sentencing. And we would go to these parties, and we had a big poster of the LSD molecule behind us, and we would sign up kids to digitize the documents in the archive. And um, what was happening is they were saying, oh, my God, you know Dr. Janiger? You know, I would just love to meet him. And I was thinking, Oz would love to meet you, too. Like, they, these people would love to know that they're still known and remembered by people and that people still care about what they did. So I started hosting these events as a cross-generational forum um, to bring people together to um, just share the wisdom from the elders um, before they were gone. And, um, and to bring together the communities and the tribes. Um, one of my original hopes, and something that sort of happened but never really did, was that I knew there was a great divide between these gentlemen and Timothy Leary, because um, Timothy Leary had popularized LSD use, and they felt like he had been irresponsible about it, and they had a little bit of anger there in, in just what had happened to them afterwards. And being here in Los Angeles, you know, we had the whole star power was behind Leary, um, you know, Perry Farrell was going over his house all the time. Um, I, I went there one night for an event for the Biosphere, and it was just, you know, it's very star-studded, Winona Ryder. Um, and we didn't have any of those people at all. We were, we were like the scientists and the people who had, um, like, done the serious work on the thing. So I say that because there were, we didn't have an email list at first, but we really very much tried to avoid attracting the kind of people who were just like going to come in and talk about their trips and like, party, I'm so fucked up, um, you know, and, and try to score drugs or whatever. This isn't what it was about at all. It was about discussing serious research. Um, in fact, I made a list. Basically, it broke down into categories. We had, um, we talked about epigens and science. We talked about politics and law. We had poly, um, and we also had uh, events about culture or meetings about culture and art, and, and everything pretty much fell into these categories. Um, when they brought the paintings in, and I, has anybody seen the thirty? The, well, actually, there were more of them than that. But the paintings that were in Life magazine in 1959, there was a cover story, um, and they had noticed that, and, and we have. All this research, you know, all the documents of all the research ever done on LSD. So you can just go through my dining room and pick out a book and look at it. Um, they had noticed at one point, and this is maybe in the 1950s somewhere, that I think, well, 59, that they, the people who had taken LSD were speaking of it in very visual terms. And so they've been in clinical settings up until this point. And they said they had a picture, or they had a kachina doll, and they had people famous painters, people who are actually artists, paint this doll first when they were not under the influence and then after they had ingested LSD. And I had 35 of these paintings in my house. Mm -hmm. And they, the ones, the, the first ones, the, the, the Kachina doll was just blue and green. And he had a, a red and orange belt. He just had a little splash of red and orange on him right here. And most of the paintings were very realistic, the first ones. Then the ones afterwards um, were, I mean, just such amazing art. You had like a Mayan Kachina doll. You had um, alien Kachina dolls. You had, um, there was a, a particular group of them, maybe five of them, that were orange. And 
at the time I didn't care much for orange, and one of them, <laughs> I had them all on this side wall over here, where I didn't have to look at them all together, and one of them in particular just looked like someone had thrown up all over the canvas, and it was, just like, and it was about this big, and I was just like, so I, at some point I had moved them to another wall, and I remember coming out of my bedroom one morning, like, all the way to the other end of the house, um, and you had a clear shot to the other end of the living room, and um, probably as far as from here to the back wall over there in the dining room, over there in that area. And um, it was a kachina doll on fire, <laughs> and it, it became my favorite painting. I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, you had to be that far away from it to see it. You know, it was amazing art, you guys. Um, anyway, the. Uh, I was going to address how illegal this was in the day, and I look out here and I see some people that are kind of in my age range, or maybe a little younger, but I I was expecting to maybe have to explain about zero tolerance and how how dangerous this was. The first gathering that we had, um, Alexander Shulgin and his wife came down and kicked it off for us. And we had, uh, they, Actually, I remember um, her coming up to me, and she pulled me aside, and she said, you know, we're on an FBI watch list, and you're going to be on one, too. And I was like, yeah, right. She <laughs> 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 was so paranoid. But the next two months, every single time I saw a police car, I was pulled over and searched. Wow. Every single time, six times. Uh, if they were in front of me, behind me, other cars, middle of the afternoon, no matter what I was doing, I got pulled over and searched. And so I kind of became a believer in that. And of course, I had nothing on me. Um, there was also, uh, at the time, um, I was in Venice. Uh, I had read in LA Weekly that they had traps on the telephones so that if you were discussing things or that certain words would come up in conversation. And we weren't using any kind because we weren't selling anything or, you know, we had no LSD lab in, in our house. <laughs> then we, we weren't really that careful at first about what we were saying. And so I imagine that we might have been targeted, you know, for... for people checking this this whole thing out. Um, we had, uh, well, actually, that first meeting with the, with the Shulgans, I remember Jack Herrera was there, and um, this is one of several times where I, just stumbling into it as a young person, had no idea these you know, men had and women had known each other forever, and they actually, they didn't all like each other. <laughs> and, and here I am just inviting them all over. And then they'd get there and go, oh, so-and-so's here. So, Duncan, uh, um, Shulgan and, uh, and uh, Herrera disagreed on what substance would change the world, which you might imagine. Um, and uh, I remember that the Shulgans would not let anyone smoke pot in the house. They were like, that's, you know, you cannot consume anything at all. So Jack just stood out on my sidewalk and puffed joint after joint after joint right in front of the house, which I didn't find out about it until later, but that was extremely illegal and scary at the time. But Venice being Venice um, at the time, you know, we had prostitutes on the corner. It was like nobody really gave a shit. Um, there, were, there were meetings where we had fire dancers out in the street and just blocked the street off. And, and people, nobody ever said anything about it. Um... As, as the meetings went on, we had a uh, we determined not to have any sort of list, and and I'm really sorry about that nowadays. I've got very few pictures. I've got um, at one point um, a few years ago, I 
we had some people together and we all sat down and we tried to write down every meeting that we could remember and every speaker that we could remember because we didn't take pictures. And there were a few times when we filmed or uh, recorded the meetings and you might see some of those on um, uh, Lorenzo Haggerty's site, uh, Matrix Masters. Um, he, uh, he did record a few, but, at the, but it was never the crowd or anything. It was just, just of the speaker. And, and we were very careful not to get anybody on camera. Um, there was definitely a, uh, a fear of that. So that the political meetings that we had were some of my favorite because I'm a rabble rouser and very radical. And I uh, wound up having an organization called Rave the Vote out of this where we would go to festivals and um, sign up people on ecstasy to vote. (laughs) 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 Hundreds of them, you guys, hundreds of them. Um, And I just remember the, the, at one point, the Rockefeller laws, they had the big demonstrations in New York, and you could, you know, the black DJs were just like, fuck the police, but the white DJs wouldn't take a stand on anything, and, and nobody seemed to care, and um, and again, when I talk to kids about this, a pre-Obama world, it's, it's hard to imagine people being so apolitical, but um, I would say... Um, I would blow up newspaper headlines um, and put them on it on a table along with my voter registration forms in our big, you know, rave the vote thing. And I would say, look at this. Justice Kennedy says that we should all be seized and searched all the time, that that would be more constitutional than just selecting people, that everyone should be subjected to that constantly. Would you like that? Would that affect your life at all? And they go, oh, yeah. And we, you know, well, here, vote. So I, I think they were probably all Democrats. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was a year talking about bicycle rides where the um, the bicycle riders thought that they were getting a police escort and the police were they, they were moving them through intersections and they're like, oh, this is really nice. And at the end of the thing, they circled them, uh, took all of their bicycles, sent them to jail and like strip searched the women five times in two days. And, and like seriously horrible, horrible stuff. Um, and of course... <coughs> They were sued and they paid, but you know they, you know who paid? We did. The people who pay our taxes here, um, we pay for that. Um, whenever, whenever people sue the police, the police don't pay. Um, you, you and I do pay. Um, we had um, only, I can think of only twice in the eight years we had the events that we had people that we thought had come in under false pretenses. And uh, one of them was pretty early on. And I remember, Will, you were talking about, you, you, was, you were talking to him about the court system. He was saying he was an attorney, but he didn't know anything about the court system or about, uh, where was San Diego, he said? you remember? Okay. <laughs> but, um, I, I was a follower of Jack Herrer. Oh, right, right. Yeah, we did. We uh, as, as the meetings wore on and the years wore on, we got a little less. Uh, my bedroom was like the stoner room, and then it started to move out into the living room, and then nobody cared or anything. But the one thing that nobody ever did was try to buy, sell, or ingest any kind of hallucinogen at my meetings. Um, everyone pretty much had their own sources, and that wasn't what the purpose of the thing. So I would think that if anybody did come in thinking that they were going to, you know, discover something or you know, bust somebody, there was absolutely no way to do that. Um, this this particular guy asked a lot of questions, um, wanted to know who's who and what we were up to, and um, I think he must have been very disappointed. Yeah, we <laughs> and then the other time, it was really funny. Um, 
I used to, when I told people about this, I would just say, well, it's the Albert Hoffman Foundation, and, which sounds very scientific and, you know, scholarly if you don't know who Albert Hoffman is. Um, and I found that that was a very good screening mechanism. You know, I'd just say this flatly, and if anybody knew who Albert Hoffman was, then they were totally cool with what they was. So, um, we had a guy that showed up one night and um, in one of our raucous free-for-all discussions or whatever, and I remember him um, going, wait a minute, wait a minute. He goes, everybody knows that ecstasy is bad for you. He goes, are you talking about it? It's okay to take it? And I, everyone in the room just sort of turned around. And went, <laughs> like, and, and it was just silence. And then somebody goes, how did you get here? <laughs> Who invited you? You know, because every once in a while, someone would come that thought, ooh, this is a really neat gathering. Because we did have um, meetings that sometimes would be about art or culture. We um, we had uh, one of our uh, one of our members worked at the um, the tar pits, the Librea tar pits, and took pictures of really beautiful psychedelic pictures of the sun play on oil and water, and um, and uh, backlit those. And you know we had him come in and show us you know a whole evening of his artwork. And and you might not have realized that everyone in the room. Um, you know, was a experienced um, traveler, <coughs> shall we say, um, from meetings like that. So you, you could see that if someone had come, maybe on the wrong night. But we, we did not publicize this to anyone. It, people people found out about it, and sometimes it took a while for people to find out about it. Um, I remember when Gary Fisher, who is now um, out of the research closet and is being recognized for what he did, he gave, um, he gave uh, MDMA, no, I'm sorry, LSD to autistic children in the 60s and had a phenomenal success rate. Like I, I remember him saying there was one little girl who did nothing but scream and that she had at one point, they, they called it the God Room where they would go in and do this, which she took him one day and she goes, you have to understand Dr. Fisher, I still have a very long ways to go. And it's like, I just actually said this. But after, after um, the hysteria over LSD you know, sort of launched, um, they, from what he had said at the, at the meeting, they, they destroyed his research. Um, I mean, people people's lives were ruined over this. Um, much the same sort of thing was happening with MDMA, and this was the reason for um, why the whole meeting was so timely, is because, um, as I used to tell people when I was explaining this, that in every culture, not every culture, many tribal cultures throughout history, when you're like 15, you go out and you ingest something and you find your animal spirit or whatever. And that's illegal in this country to do that. And, and But it doesn't stop the human need for the children to separate themselves from their parents or find their own you know, entities um, and, and discover themselves. So uh, that was definitely one of the major um, pushes of many of our, of our topics. Um, we had uh, Raphael Eisner came in and uh, I had so many young ravers tell me that they wished their friends had been there, or their boyfriends or whatever, where he explained how MDMA works and that you couldn't take more and get off more. And I'm assuming that probably most people in this room are aware now that you know if you take 5-HTP, um, like he, he basically said you could do it 12 to 20 times a year with absolutely no ill effects at all as long as you get your serotonin time to build back up. And um, that, it, I see now that there's a... Uh, you know, they call it Molly nowadays, but there's definitely an interest and a return to that because toward the end of this era, 
um, everything was so adulterated that, you know, I have to say that one of the reasons, there were, there were several reasons why we stopped doing this. One of them was that everybody died, like, like all of our scientists and the, and the elders were gone. But um, that the scene had been, um, well, the researcher, is it Ricot, how you pronounce his name? The one who falsified his research. No, I don't remember what his name is. Ricot. Ricot. I didn't know if he pronounced the T or not. He um, got, there's this level of hysteria up with the Bush administration where he um, said that there was like a, what was it, a 40% mortality rate, something crazy. Oh, you get, I think it was like Parkinson's. But they were talking about a mortality rate, and, and it took several years for someone to go, wait a minute, if all these kids are doing this every weekend, <laughs> we don't have all these people dropping dead, and, and this isn't happening. But it, it served to do a couple of things. Number one, you could not play electronic music in public without getting arrested. Um, they couldn't gather. They passed laws in Europe against gathering or playing electronic music. I talked to some people at your house last mm-hmm. night, and you said, yeah, that, that you could... Um, we, I know that we would go out to you know to desert parties and we'd keep an eye out and we'd put on like uh, country music if we saw the Rangers come. <laughs> and, and did that make them think we were all doing speed? I'm like, I don't know, you know. But I, I, it would make me very angry to to be um, you know pigeonholed into this. And then of course you go, well, they are white. We are doing this, you know. But um, definitely it should not have been demonized the way that it was. And and the word rape became a bad a bad word and you just couldn't use it anymore. In fact. Um, when rave the vote was folded in to rock the vote, um, it was at this point where you couldn't use the word rave anymore. And um, I was really pushing for them to call it roll the vote. Because <laughs> 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 I thought that would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to see about some of the discussions we had. Um, oh, one of the political... Does anybody know Francis Delavecchia in here? Yes. Yeah. Francis. When Francis was running for mayor, um, he came in and read one... Um, read the first chapter of his book and um, this is a whole category, ego we, we, I sometimes did not realize what I was stumbling into when I would invite people who maybe didn't get along with each other <laughs> and, um, and I, I would just kind of laugh about it because I think well what we're told is the whole lesson here about this process is that it's about a loss of ego and we're supposed to lose our ego in the process. So what does it mean when our elders have like this ego showdown in front of us? Um, it was kind of amusing actually. There were only a few times where I'd have to just stand up and stop it. You know, and, and, you know I, when I was like 30 years old, 35, well maybe maybe 37. <laughs> but I would, I would, you know, to, to actually get up and tell someone with a PhD in his 80s to stop talking. It was a difficult thing to do, but every once in a while I'd have to do it. And I just remember one of my favorite ones, um, we had uh, Art Konkanen from the LA Free Press. And Art had uh, quite famously published the addresses of all the, the drug um, the drug uh, officers in the LAPD or in California. And they didn't have a DEA back then, did they? Back in the 60s, though. Yeah, back in the 60s. But this is one of his big claims to fame. He'd, he'd um, been hung out with Timothy Leary. Um, Art, Art had a great pedigree, you know, and it was definitely somebody we wanted to talk to. Well, Myron Stoleroff was also a dear friend who was um, on the board of directors of the Albert Hoffman Foundation. And apparently they had a rivalry that I was unaware of. And... Um, when Art found out that Myron had spoken at my gathering, Art had to talk to. So he came down, we scheduled him for a talk, and I just remember there, there being a rather 
increasingly pointed discussion about whether or not Americans could truly practice Buddhism. And it got really ugly, and I finally just had to go, stop, stop, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Iris Lord was one of these people, and um, Iris is still around, but she's had a stroke, and she's in New York. And Iris was um, in her 70s, and I remember her telling me, she, she had a stage show that she did. Called, there weren't very many women at these things, by the way. As largely male, and especially the older women who were there, the women who were in their 60s and 70s, were just fabulous people. Um, Myron Stolaroff's wife, um, Jean, told me one time that when she was 15, she and her girlfriends in New York used to steal a car and drive into New York City to see Frank Sinatra play. Um, which I was just like, that is so punk rock. <laughs> Wonderful women. Anyway, Iris um, did a stage show called 12, um, 12 Famous Men, and she had relationships with people like Marlon Brando, Lenny Bruce, um, like really an amazing life. Um, some of these relationships when she was 14 years old, which, like, I don't know. I work in the music business, and I hear these things, and I don't know, but just suddenly... I guess it used to be legal to have sex with 14-year-olds. I mean, like, nobody used to care. But, you know, and it's, a, it's a little disturbing. Though, but she, she and her sister, her twin sister, very beautiful. My, uh, She looked, she, at 74, she's a very beautiful woman. Anyway, God bless um, Iris. She's uh, in New York, and um, they, she and her, her husband call me every now and then, but she's unable to talk on the phone. We had um, all of like a who's who, like uh, talking about the scientific programs that we had and the ones that, that were about um, drugs, we basically, we, I'd go, we need someone to talk about ketamine, and we'd find a guy, and he'd come in and speak. Um, we need someone to talk about salvia divinorum, whether there's a guy who grows up in Malibu, we'll have him in. Um, we had uh, uh, so many talks about ayahuasca and ibogaine, um, you know, Really, I've never done either one of those substances, but um, we, I was in the minority. I, I would say maybe a third of our attendees had. In fact, um, one of the things that they said about these gatherings was that if you wanted to be a speaker, you better know your topic pretty well because there were probably many people in the audience who knew as much or more about your topic than you did. <laughs> I'm recalling um, Christmas. We had a, a Christmas program about the shamanic origins of Christmas. <laughs> and my roommate at the time was a um, he uh, he was taking so long to talk about like everyone in the audience was just coming like I know I'm, oh, they raved there they, you know they, they drank the reindeer piss because they ate the mushrooms and, and they, you know the Amanita Mascara Mushroom is on all these woodcuts and, and you know, they just basically kind of wrested the discussion away from him and everyone else gave the talk you know like, apparently we all knew everything and we didn't even need anyone to talk about it um, we had a, a girl in who did a, a documentary about Chernobyl and I remember that she was very surprised like that, like at the level of um, of knowledge that we had in this group. In fact, uh, Ed Jaffe said to me one night, I remember this, he just goes, well, once again, Kathleen, all the smartest people in L.A. are at your house on Friday night. <laughs> um, because L.A. kind of has a reputation for not being that deep. And um, we really, I found that later, later on when we started uh, using an email list, but we never did like a group, we never published it in any way, um, that... Uh, 
I would just kind of lose some people's email addresses if, if they caused us too much trouble. You know, if people came in just wanted to talk about themselves or hijack the discussion or wanted to give shit to the speaker, because that wasn't what it was about. It was about a good feeling thing and about making our speakers feel welcome. Um, and, and definitely, you know, whenever we opened the thing up for discussion, I, I just would always look at the look of delight on our speaker's face when he would hear like how intelligent and pointed the questions were. You know, it was like this was really a great, a great place to talk about your your area of interest. Anyway, we had obviously the people from Arrowhead. Rick Doblin um, was in a couple of times, well, more than a couple of times. I remember um, he came back from Palenque, and um, we used to hang a sheet on the back wall for a screen. And uh, he was showing slides from Palenque, and he. He got up and he just sort of shook. The, there was a picture of one of the ruins, and he shook the sheet so that it shimmered. And he goes, "This is what it looked like to us." <laughs> <laughs> um, anything, Andy Pap. Oh my God, Andy. Um, we didn't have too many people. We had a few people who came in who had not um, tasted the sacrament. Um, I had a roommate who was one of them. She was a fundamental Christian, and I always felt like it was really. <laughs> Really big of her to be so open-minded to that she would help me get ready for the meetings. She would help me clean up afterwards, and she would be at all of them and listen to everything everybody had to say with a very open mind. Yet she was definitely um, like as fundamental as it gets about heaven and hell and 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 you know all of that. Um, she. Uh, Andy Papp was another one. Andy is now a definite part of the community. He goes to Burning Man every year, but he's a scientist who invented the clone gun, and he was a very kind of crotchety guy. <laughs> and I remember we never had any pot in food that was just not even discussed. It was just understood that that was one of the rules. We, we were not dosing anyone. We weren't like getting high at the meeting. This was not for that. And somebody, then I used to give a prize for the best homemade dish. And it was usually just some weird thing I found in my house because I had so much crap in the house. I just go, oh, here, we'll get this away. But um, Andy, they, they said these were extra leaded brownies. And, I, and he asked me several times, he goes, does that mean we have potted? I'm like, oh, no, Andy, no, it just means it's extra chocolate. And I was so sure that it was. Well, it turned out, nope, I was wrong. I ate like four of them. And, um, and it's probably the only time that I really ever, like, started sweating at that event because Andy was, I thought at the time he was the kind of person who would sue me and I, I remember I sat next to him the rest of the night and held his hand and he was being kind of crotchety and mean but I just sat there and held his hand because um, I didn't want him to sue me. <laughs> anyway, and I and actually I had, to, I had to call Andy down a couple of times and just say, hey, you were mean to the speaker or you got to stop that. you got to stop questioning too hard. Um, definitely a high point. Allie Ginsberg read his poetry in my living room, and, and that uh, he, he many times when these speakers would come, I'd have their book that they wrote, and I would have them sign it. And uh, that was one of only two times someone stole something from my house. Um, someone stole the, the book of poetry that Allie Ginsberg signed for me, so I'm really sad about that. Some dickhead has a book that says thank you Kathleen and, right? and that will remind him constantly that he stole it um, but uh, anyway 
Um, we had a guy whose dad was a blacklisted writer, wrote a screenplay about when he was under surveillance by the FBI. Amy Pofal Ralston, who served um, some of the most poignant meetings that we had, were people who had been victims in the war on, war on drugs. And we had a, a couple of really notable meetings where people had been incarcerated and um, had a lot to say about the prison industrial complex. And Amy was one of those people. In fact, she's made a movie about marijuana, which some of you guys may have seen, um, Amy Ralston. Um, it's, it, it follows the legal um, history of marijuana. And um, anyway, you, know you, you definitely need to have her speak at one of these. She, she was fabulous. She served, she was, her ex-husband, her estranged husband, was manufacturing MDMA in Germany. And when they made it illegal in America, uh, the FDA, or the, the um, DEA, arrested him when he came back into the country. And they started pressuring her. And they wanted her to wear a wire and go to all of his contacts. And she was like, I'm not with this man. I haven't been with him for years. I don't know any of these people. And I'm not going to do it. And they harassed her for two years. She said at one point, um, they like kicked in all her walls. They tore the door off her refrigerator, they threw things around, they, they, they told her that they were going to make her sorry that she hadn't cooperated, and the worse things got, the more determined she became to not help them at all, and uh, every time she got a job, they'd call up her, her employer and tell, her that, tell them that she was under federal drug investigation, anyway, she's 100% innocent, she got a 19-year sentence, and uh, served nine years of it before President Clinton pardoned her, and um, this was so chilling, you guys. I, I have um, the, the legal, the, the things that we did to try to help people were, the, I want to see, I get goosebumps easy, but I have right now, thinking about these poor women in jail, that um, basically if you don't have anyone to turn in, you know, the, the, the man that these, one woman, her roommate I think was in jail for 25 years for translating a telephone call. If, if you wanted to get a conspiracy um, verdict against people. You had to have three people and the undercover agent could not be one of them. So they would have, um, you know, just trump up all these charges against the girlfriend and she would have nobody to turn in. So she'd wind up going to jail for 25 years and a man would be out because he'd turn in, you know, somebody and he would go free. And it just really, really awful. Um, what, that's one of the things that uh, John Beresford was involved in um, with the Committee Against Unjust Sentencing, uh, the November Coalition, and um, the Tallahassee Project, which profiled 100 women in Tallahassee prison and what had happened to their families. Um, all of this, I mean, the good news is all of this is, um, you know, news in the newspaper right now. You, you know, it, it started out that really only the libertarians and like some hardcore Republicans would even agree with you on this, that it didn't make sense to be punishing these people. But through some of these talks, we definitely saw how the prison industrial complex profited from these things. And it was so clear that at the end of the Cold War that there was a need to have a war against somebody, and so America turned to war against its own people. Um, and we were the gorillas in the trenches, you know? Do you remember what her movie was called? I, it was something like Hot. Like I, I remember thinking, like this, like everybody's made a movie like this. But I went to the premiere and it was really well done. And I, you know what? I'll let you know. And I, I'm in touch with her. And you guys should definitely have her for a speaker here. She's an amazing, amazing speaker. Um, 
we, people who were invited had to be vetted. Like you couldn't just tell anybody, especially in the early days of the meeting. We, you know, we, we had a, um, we actually mailed out the invitations in the early days. Um, we were careful not to say anything on the phone. Um, Laura Huxley was my house. Um, I'm just looking through the list here. Um, you know, Dr. Janiker, uh, Oz, he uh, talked about the LSD studies he did with Cary Grant. We had Cary Grant's handwritten notes about his LSD experiences in my house. And in fact, I've got a really great story about that. Um, Eva Marie Saint has said that when she was doing North by Northwest with him, that uh, she felt very uncomfortable and he wasn't very nice to her and she was really freaked out and she didn't feel like she was doing a good job. And then one Monday he came in completely different. And she said it was after the weekend after he had done LSD. Anyway, he did it over 200 times with us and we had all of his notes. Anais Nen, um, we had uh, Laura Huxley, you know, all this Huxley's widow came. Um, Myron, uh, who, uh, you know, wrote... Uh, the Secret Chief, um, John Lilly uh, was there. John had, uh, this was in his uh, phase where he'd been sitting on Venice Beach in a Speedo in his wheelchair doing ketamine and it, it pretty much kind of, I, uh, I was upset with him over the dolphin thing and um, I, you know, it was obviously very nice, but he was just barely there. But, it, but I do have a photo of him at my house. And, you know, so it was just pretty much all the notables before before they were gone. We never had Terrence McKenna. Um, but if you look down the list of the board of directors, um, we stopped dropping them off the list when they died because we realized we just needed to put a little star next to their name and say deceased because they remained who they were and their name on the project, you know, remained important. And um, I'm very, very happy that this is going to happen again, it looks like. And, and more openly and um, with, with more support from the rest of the country, you know, where you don't have to discuss. I, I remember uh, my... Um, 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 Lorenzo Haggerty had a meeting where he, he, I think he was still working for AT&T or something when he did this, but it was like, how do you talk to people about this without getting fired? How do you know who it's safe to talk to? And we actually had a meeting about um, techniques and, and you know different <laughs> strategies for bringing this up to people that you worked with, or you know, hey, I just. I saw this thing on TV the other night, you know, and act like you didn't know anything or act like you didn't have an opinion to draw people out to try to educate them, you know. Um, it was a very exciting time. Um, and when, whenever we didn't have, every once in a while we wouldn't have a speaker or someone would, would cancel. And I'd just invite in maybe a musical group that I worked with or um, one of my favorite meetings was... Uh, Walter King, who just passed away a couple months ago. Walter was a civil rights attorney. And he had been turning up for several years, and I didn't really even know who he was. But we had about six people there that night. It was a very small group. and, and um, Because we just had it the third Friday night of every month, no matter what. At some point, we stopped. We didn't even need to send out an announcement. People would just come. you know. And it, and it, it went on. I think we only took off maybe five times in eight years. Like, seriously, it, it was always happening. And... Um, Walter, I said, well, what, who are we? Who's here? Yeah, let's just everybody go around and tell their story. And Walter got up and he 
told of how he had been, yeah, his family had escaped Nazi Germany when he was eight years old. And they had gone um, to Italy. And that he had joined Mussolini's fascist youth brigade. And how he had, Mussolini and Hitler had pinned a pin on him on stage. And he, and he, and he said, he goes, I could have killed them both. But I was only eight years old. <laughs> and, and then he sang two fascist youth songs in Italian in the living room and, and, and told us how, like, after the war, his dad married an Egyptian slave and he would join the Merchant Marines and then he's cruising across some body of water in South America and, um, and they're going, come join the revolution. And he's like, I'm going to go to the United States and get rich, and um, which he never did. But um, and it was Che Guevara. I mean, the, the scope of the people, if, if someone did LSD in 1959, you guys, they pretty much, many of them had also like climbed Mount Everest. Like, I, I, I can't tell you what great adventurers these, these people were and what, what special souls. Um, the, the first meeting that we had, um, I had three members of the adventure, the Adventurers Club, which, you know, you have to climb Mount Everest to be in that. And, and you got to be nominated by someone else. And um, at one point, I had, like, all these people in the kitchen, and I'm like, everyone who floated naked down the Amazon is talking in the kitchen. <laughs> and and they, these people would meet each other, and they go, oh, yes, you married me in Fiji in 1949. <laughs> Just fabulous, fabulous. And um, I, I hope to create, that we create some new memories here. Um, I, I start out now maybe as one of the elders, which is kind of fucked up and sad. Um, but awesome too. Yeah. Anyway, somebody's got to, you know, people got to step in and, and take it take it from there. Anyway, anybody have any questions? Sweet. Well, thank you. Oscar Jenniger's take on LSD just briefly. Not Oz did it like into his 80s when he got together with um, with uh, uh, Albert Hoffman uh, as elderly men. I remember seeing a picture of the two of them, and I think they were like in their underwear and some bushes, just sort of like, like hey, <laughs> you know, they uh, Oz. Um, I'm I'm very concerned about what happened to the archive. Um, I know that um, that uh, things started to disappear out of it, and there was a, an unfortunate situation with my roommate that I won't really go into, who um, was the uh, Oz's secretary, and they had a big falling out, and um, I wasn't really implicated in it, but they did find a more permanent home for the collection, and it went to Pasadena. Oh, I think Eric would take it over. Did they? Do they yeah, have the I paintings? I, I, Do they I, have I, the paintings? I don't know about the paintings, yeah, but they... There are the paintings. Okay, yeah, because I, I emailed um, the Albert Hoffman Foundation being like, let's see if the, anyone responds, and um, uh, Earth responded back to me. And oh, she good, said they good took, to They know. took over the I'm whole I'm so glad to hear that. Um, because, uh, well, obviously the LSD books, I had the 75 volumes from the Sandoz Corporation, those right there, and then the, um, the paintings were like part of mine. And I, I had uh, Ron Breton, do you know Ron? Yeah. Ron was the president of the Albert Hoffman Foundation, and I, the final things I found when I moved out of uh, Penmark, I had things in my garage that, that I gave to them. In fact, you guys, I'm writing. I'm writing about this because we were evicted from this house about um, two and a half years ago, and um, I just started thinking about what had gone on there and, and what an amazing salon this was, and that it was, you know, in my mind, you know, 
I don't want to say it's as important as Millwood, but it certainly maybe, you know, was on the list of uh, great salons in the history of, the, of our culture. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't want it to be forgotten. And I'm also very, um, you know, pissed at the evil people who kicked us out of our house. So I'm, I have this uh, sort of flower revenge planned where I want to tell people that if they are in Venice, that they should put some flowers on the fence at 2463 Penmar. So if you guys are ever around there, write down the address and just stick some flowers in the fence so that whoever's living there will just go, what are these fucking hippies doing? <laughs> <laughs> flowers on our fence all the time. And we'll make a little pilgrimage to where this all happened. Kathleen, yeah. someone, someone Foster's research, or Oz's research was, uh, I found uh, actually on the playa at Burning Man, photocopies. Um, Oz, Oz had trusted someone to be his assistant, and this is before we, we got involved, and they had um, stolen a lot of this stuff, and they were selling it on the internet. Um, so I don't know if that's the case. But I do know that it's one of the reasons that uh, they felt kind of beaten down and didn't feel, um, you know, felt like they'd been used by people. Yeah. As we start off this salon series, what do you think are some of the most important things to um, in- learn about and encourage people to? It's engaging people, you guys. It, it's And actually, I didn't mention this. Fraser Clark came to one of our meetings, mm-hmm. and he said that he had... <laughs> Heard about what we did, and, and which was very flattering because obviously, like I said, we weren't public. Um, and he said that he came to speak to us because he thought that Southern California youth were going to change the world. And he said it's because we are exporting the entertainment industry, and people care about what we wear, what we say, what we do, what we think, and what we believe, and that um, we can influence people. And and definitely. That was always part of my um, my manifesto was to um, to try to change the world and, and to affect other people. Um, we we had like a disc- discussed a lot about having like a media desk because all these people had PhDs and they could like it, when the newspaper had some inaccuracy in it, they could say, well, you know, actually you can't die from eating psilocybin, you know, or, or things like this. You know, there, there was a need for expert voices. Um, so I think definitely to keep um, in mind about how we engage the, the rest of the world and how we can affect public policy and laws. Um, it, it seems to me like um, that's the way it's going because it's just not financially feasible for them to put everyone in jail in America um, unless the rest of us work at the jail. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, Definitely, I think just by um, by being knowledgeable and being able to counteract the hysteria or any misinformation that you might run into, that that's there, there's a there's a great deal of power and knowledge, and um, definitely that whatever you learn at these things, um, you, you, you take with you and, and spread out to, to more people. Mm-hmm. How do you think the psychedelic culture has changed since the time when you were hosting these style of events? And what, and well, you can use the word rave again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it. Uh, I have. Uh, it seems very similar. You know, it's interesting because I'm pulling things I used to wear out of my my closets and or my, you know, trunks, and I'm going, oh wow, I can wear this again if I lost some weight. <laughs> um, that it. It seems to me that you know how culture and fashion and everything seems to come back around like once every 20 years 
uh, a lot of things seem very 1990s to me very, right now. The only thing that's different is the openness in which we can talk and the ease with which we can gather. You know, that we can, um, you don't have to print up flyers and put them around anymore or call people on the phone or put, put a stamp on something. You know, all you have to do is just type it up and hit a button. And, and I think there, the opportunities to engage people are enormous. That, that would be the difference is the Internet, you know. You think you're still on the FBI watch list? <laughs> you know, you guys are too now. <laughs> <laughs> We're all on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think they gave up on me, but yeah, it was pretty scary there for a little while. I remember one guy, one of the policemen, he's like, um, I was, he actually put me in the back of his car, and uh, I was uh, thinking, I'm gonna, I, I suddenly remembered I had a butt of weed in a glove box, and I'm like, oh shit. And, um, and he came in, and I thought he was going to go, what's this? But instead he turned around to me, and he goes, are you living out of your car, Kathleen? <laughs> what? You know, I was an actress. I had shoes and stuff in there. You know, I'm like, no. And then he goes, you're on methamphetamine, aren't you? And I'm like, no. Uh, I don't do that. And then he goes, well, you're a wreck. And I just burst into tears. And I, I go, I'm not a wreck. I'm wearing a dress, and I have a makeup. And I, and I go, I take my vitamins, and I work out. And I, I go, if you think I'm a wreck, it's because... <laughs> and then he, he like starts touching me. Oh no, you're a very attractive woman, Kathleen. Yeah, it's just yeah. Yeah, you, you, that you know what? There's a difference. You have a camera on that right now, and you wouldn't be calling me. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Has the Patriot Act challenged some of the ways you feel congregations used to happen? I remember that Russian uh, e-book cracker came in as like a we had so many horror stories about stuff like that. I mean, seriously, like, like I don't think people really know, like, kids, yeah, kids today, you don't know. We had to walk the school barefoot. Like, seriously, it was, it was really scary. I remember the TIPS program, you know, that there was, there was a definite... Um, fear that somebody could turn you in for being un-American. And, you know, when Bush won, it, it, it really got worse. You know, it was the, the level of paranoia and, and fear. And then at some point, you know, every once in a while people would be like, well, we're going to move. Like we had a biofuel bus come through and everybody's going to Costa Rica. Come join us. Um, people wanted to move to New Zealand. It, 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 uh, it was like, do we stay and fight? Um, because I had a definite belief that you can't be like some kind of martyr if nobody knows about you. Like there's no sense of throwing away your life for a cause if you're not going to change anything. And one of one of my ideas that I really liked a lot and that I think someone still should do um, is that with the red states and all the ignorance back there, you know, when I go back to Springfield, Missouri, I always put it, make it one of my things that I do to, I, I upset people, I provoke people, but not in a bad way. I talk to them and I give them facts. I speak authoritatively about things and they can't, like, you know, tell me that I'm wrong. And um, that we we should send people in, like, like 
under like spies or something to go in and like open up little coffee shops in small towns across America to engage people in conversation and change their minds. You know, instead of just sitting in a tree, which you know, like and you know, like butterfly, whatever, you know, like or blocking traffic or doing things that obstruct things. Why not find ways to to really change things? You know, very. I think that would be very sneaky, like wonderful. You know, the real thing to do is to send people in, like you know, missionaries for higher consciousness. Um, to uh, to you know, you probably have to be blonde to go do it or something. You'd have to look like the people who live there, um, and and just uh, kind of subversively start to work on them and, and change their minds. Yeah. I was wondering if, if anybody in the group had done any research about other revolutionary things that had happened in the history and used those parallels and found things that worked in terms of... That uh, sounds like it'd be a good talk for you to give. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about it. I, I have a... I almost minored in history. I'm a revolutionary for sure. Um, and I, I have to say that um, the end of every century, you find certain things, like the ideas of free love and um, flight and, and open-mindedness. Um, there, there's certain things that come back around, like the end of the 1700s, into the 1800s, into the 1900s. Um, and, and you definitely, you know, like whether it's a balloon or the Wright brothers or the space shuttle, or, or and free love seems to be the same every time. <laughs> um, but, but there's definitely... Um, well, the French have a word for it, fin de siècle. Um, you know, it's an openness that we have when, when the century is changing over. And, um, you know, here we are. I, 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 I know that I didn't pay off any of my charge cards till after 2012, but just in case. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to worry about this if the world's going to end, and then, damn it, it didn't. But, um, <laughs> no, I think, I think that's very interesting, yeah, and I would say that I know that I had a definite interest in that. I mean, I, I know a lot about the French Revolution, the American Revolution, um, and definitely I, uh, I saw what we were doing as... Um, that's a bit revolutionary. You know? I mean, have we employed any of those techniques and used them in their working? Like, is there anything that's happened that, that causes of us being able to have this meeting in a more open way that, that had been done through revolutionary activity, where it's just happening because everybody's doing it? Or what? I'm just wondering what the, you know, what we're doing is actually for that. I'd say that the cost, the, mo- the thing that I think has changed public opinion the most is just the cost of the drug war is um, who was it that said that when the punishment is worse than the the offense, um, then you've got to take a look at it. And just the, the, the fact that we have more people incarcerated per capita than any country in the world, um, I'm, I'm just nauseated to know that it was um, a guy from what is a New Jersey prison at Abu Ghraib who taught everybody what to do there, that, that you know, people are so routinely abused, that the poor man in Florida that they boiled to death in his shower this year, um, on 180-degree steam shower. It's, do you guys know about that? No. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, we've got a long ways to go on, on crime and punishment here. Um, and, and that, again, you look here, we are on the west side of California, of Los Angeles. We, no matter what our... Financial state may be we are privileged people and we're in a position to try to change things, you know, without the, the dangers, the routine dangers that many people face, you know. You know, I mean, we're, with the whole police brutality cases and, and what, you know, the uh, Black Lives Matter thing, I think that that ties in very much to this. 
because especially the way that, that the, the laws have been disproportionately um, you know, leveled against um, minorities. It, it's just really, we think this country's free, but I think we all know that it's not. So glad you guys invited me to come here. I have, I have a few pictures. I have a few pictures. We're probably going to upload them to some kind of site yeah, or something. Yeah. You know, I, I we didn't have a like show or anything. Or if you don't know, the people are kind of boring anyway. So, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, just to close off, I mean, I, I think that having this kind of historical context to this new Salon series, I think is really important to be able to take a moment of gratitude that things are a lot better now in terms of being able to be more open about these things. And I think that this is a really good time to be able to think about, you know, we do have the freedom of speech here. And I mean, uh, you can talk about your experiences to the people that you love and, like, start sharing your stories. I mean, I wouldn't talk about, like, buying, selling, or making anything, um, but you can share your stories. So, you know, consider the people in your lives that um, that are very close to you that don't know this aspect of you so that we can um, start changing the public perception. Uh, I think one of the, the, the biggest... Um, the the people that tend to get um, kind of pushed over to the other side of voting for medical marijuana are people who do know someone that uses medical marijuana. So I think in the same way, if you become of an ambassador and show that you're, you know, an intelligent, you know, person that's got their stuff together, um, and you say that you have tried some of these things and it's made a positive impact on your life, um, it it makes people curious, you know. And um, the, with the Aware Project, it's we're not. Advocating for like full legalization or uh, in, um, or you know that everybody should do psychedelics, but we're just trying to make people curious about these things um, and encourage people um, to maybe rethink what they what they think that they think about psychedelics and to the to hopefully you know start to be able to get more research funded because if that's if anything um, at least it's just going to make it more safe you know for the people that may do these things no matter if they're legal or not um, and at, at best it could be a, you know a whole new area of therapy for people that have you know really tough um, you know uh, uh, psychological or whatever kind of situations so um, I'm really excited to be starting this series out, and um, please stay tuned. We're going to have our next speaker next month is going to be uh, Vicki Kraft, who is the uh, leader of the Santo Daime, the first legal Santo Daime church in California, and it just became legalized in past June. Um, so the Santo Daime is an ayahuasca church from Peru, uh, so it's pretty exciting that this is the first legal one in California, so she's going to talk about the legal process that she went through um, to get her church legalized. Um, so please come back, share um, uh, the event, bring friends, and Santa spread the good words. Yes, yes, and please be on um, get on the email list um, and check out Bicycle Day and AwareProject.org. So thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. In just a moment, I'm going to close with a short reading from my novel in which I talk about Kathleen's salon. But first I want to mention a date that will, well, it'll soon be here. (laughs) However, since many of our fellow saloners don't listen to these podcasts when they come out, uh, well, this event may have already passed. 
What I'm talking about is the Bicycle Day event that Ashley Booth and her fellow members of the AWARE Project have organized. To begin with, you can find more information about the AWARE Project at awareproject.org and information about the Bicycle Day event, which is going to take place on April 18, 2015, can be found at www.bicycleday.la. As you know, Bicycle Day is a celebratory day that commemorates the date Dr. Albert Hoffman first tripped on LSD and then bicycled home from his lab in Basel, Switzerland on uh, April 19, 1943. Now, during the bicycle ride home, he experienced the psychedelic effects of LSD, making this the date of the first ever acid trip, propelling the West into the psychedelic age. Now, if you're in L.A. or in the L.A. area and are looking for a place to find the others, then the AWARE Project and Bicycle Day event are the place to go. As a side note, while a few of the elders who participated in Kathleen's Salon are no longer with us, many of the others are still alive and kicking. For example, uh, Kathleen mentioned Art Culkin, the legendary founder of the L.A. Free Press, and an important member of our community for longer than most of us have been alive. Well, Art just celebrated his 87th birthday with a party at Joshua Tree, so happy birthday, Art. Also, uh, I was talking to Jean Stolaroff the day before yesterday, and I told her about the story Kathleen told about her. <laughs> and I should mention that Jean and I are really close friends, and so when she started to backtrack a little on the story, I reminded her that, well, she'd told me that story as well. There were a few little differences, and of course now we've agreed that while she may not have actually stolen a car, she and her friend actually did skip school on more than one occasion to attend big band concerts. However, they took public transportation. <laughs> she wanted to be clear on that. And by the way, uh, Jean would love to hear from you if you can uh, remember how to use snail mail. She's not on the net and doesn't have email. But her mailing address is Post Office Box 742, Lone Pine, California, 93545. And you have no idea how pleased she would be to hear from you. In fact, several years ago, while Myron was still alive, I also asked our fellow saloners to send them a note in the mail. Only two people did so, but Jean still mentions them when we talk. So, if you can, it would be really nice of you to drop her a note. Just a card would be great, actually. And did I mention that Jean is now 88 years old and still living on her own up in the high desert? Where yesterday she drove out towards Death Valley to look at this year's beautiful crop of wildflowers. She's simply unstoppable. Now, getting back to Kathleen and her salon, I'm going to close by reading a few paragraphs from Chapter 9 of The Genesis Generation, which is titled, Caitlin's Salon. According to Fig, Caitlin's was one of the places in Southern California where the worlds of music, art, and intellectual conversation converged. On the occasions when I attended one of these gatherings... I met movers and shakers from the Hollywood scene, prominent university professors, musicians from all over the world, more writers than you can count, DJs, drifters, old hippies, and young couples, some even with infants in tow. I found that if you used your imagination when you were attending one of these salons, it was easy to think that maybe you were attending a Communist Party cell meeting in Chicago during the 1930s. Without a doubt, this was the most eclectic and fascinating crowd that I have ever encountered. Only at Burning Man have I seen its equivalent. What is most exceptional about Caitlin's house, at least to me, is not its decor or even its funky goth-meets-art-deco design. 
What I find so unique about her place is the force with which its ambiance hits you when you first walk in the door. Maybe you wouldn't feel it if you came in without first knowing some of the history that has transpired there. But that wasn't the case with me. After Fig picked me up at the airport for my first visit to L.A., we spent the afternoon strolling along the waterfront in Venice Beach, while she told me about many of the great evenings she had experienced at Caitlin's. So as soon as I stepped down into that sunken living room, I recognized the huge curved sofa where at various times psychedelic elders like Anne and Sasha Shulgin, Oscar Janiger, Arthur Conklin, and John Lilly had vigorously exchanged ideas and joined in the group conversations. So vivid has been Fig's description of some of the more memorable nights at Caitlin's that I swear I could see the ghosts of Gary Fisher and Myron Stolaroff sitting on that little couch that squared the L-shaped sofa, talking about the legendary Al Hubbard, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. What a history that magical room has. Now, skipping ahead a little bit in the story, uh, the chapter includes this. Okay, everyone, a voice from the dining room called out. Let's get started. We've got a larger crowd than usual tonight, so everyone scrunch in a little closer. And you guys in the kitchen, come on in here if you can fit. I turned around to locate the source of this lilting female voice, just as Fig was saying, That's Caitlin. I'll try to remember to introduce you to her before we leave. Within a few minutes, Caitlin had somehow taken control and quieted the dozens of private conversations that spilled out of the living room and into the dining room and kitchen. I don't know what I expected to see and hear at one of Caitlin's salons, but I apparently assumed that it would be more of a high-class affair with a lot of people talking about the arts and psychedelic drugs and other things I didn't keep up with. But as I soon learned, these evenings were more of a raucous intellectual free-for-all where you had better know what you were talking about because for sure there would be at least one person there who knew as much about your topic as you did. As I look back to the times I made it to one of Caitlin's get-togethers, I can see a thread running from her salon back to the eclectic College of Complexes in Chicago during the time Slim Brundridge was its proprietor. And from there, this slender little thread of never-ending conversation continues back to the salons of Paris and on in time back to the public spaces in ancient Athens. How else could we have evolved as far as we have if there hadn't been countless thousands of these little gatherings where ideas could collide, regroup, and then collide again until the final seed of some new idea grew into a meme, which in turn might eventually grow into yet another new idea. Last month, Caitlin continued after once again regaining control of the room, our discussion leader was our British friend Al, or the alchemist as he is more affectionately known. And with that, the tall, stately, and over-the-top gorgeous Caitlin smiled, blew a kiss, and winked at Al, who blew a kiss back her way. And Kathleen, all of us here in the Psychedelic Salon are blowing you kisses right now as well. Thank you so very much for everything that you have done and continue to do for our community. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>